I, I own two robes. I own two robes, and I brought one of them along with me today. I own two robes. I never wear them. Never. Once or twice a year, I will don my robes in front of my family. That's it. I, I never wear them because my daughter, my daughter Jillian, even has a Snuggie. Not me, okay? I, do you want to know why? Come on. Who looks good in a robe? Who looks good in a robe? No, 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 no. And yet, and yet any time, any time heaven is depicted in cartoons or in a movie, what are they all wearing? Robes. I was talking to a buddy who called me last night, and I mentioned this to him, and he goes, oh, I'm telling you, Kate Upton looks great in a robe. And I had to say, Matthias, come on, buddy. You're not thinking of the kind of robes they wear in heaven if they wear robes. Okay, so why is it that they have robes depicted all the time? And the other thing that comes up a lot when in cartoons and in movies is they're always strumming harps. You notice that? I am a musician, and I've known quite a few harpists. And typically, they're pencil-thin women who are angry with everyone. <laughs> I know. And now I'm going to, for the people that listen online, I'm going to get like an email. I just want you to know, hi, my name's Frank. I weigh 275 pounds, and I took up the harp at age 42. You know, <laughs> okay? But harpists, okay, you listen to harp music. I was at a wedding once that had a harpist. It's nice background music, but it doesn't set your soul on fire. It doesn't make your chest cavity, you know, reverberate like a U2 concert. So why do we have harps in heaven all the time, in cartoons and in the movies? I don't get it. John Eldridge is famous for saying this. He said this, nearly every Christian I've ever met has thought of heaven as a never-ending church service. I just want to say as a pastor, no! I'm ordained, and I would be wanting to do revisit the whole hell thing to go, okay, now are there levels, and how bad are we talking bad, you know, <laughs> okay, all right? There is a ton of misinformation out there about the afterlife. I mean, there's a ton of it, which is odd because we are actually commanded in the Bible to focus on heaven. Believe it or not, we're actually commanded in the Bible in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this. This is what he writes. Uh, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not about the things of earth. So we're commanded in the Bible to actually think and focus on heaven. When was the last time you did that? Really? I mean, same here. I mean, it's so much easier to get more excited about an iPad or a Nokia 920 Windows 8 mobile phone. Come on, go with me. Cherry red? No, you're all iPad users. Okay, so it's so much more easy. It's so much easier to get excited about an iPad than it is to about floating on a cloud, wearing a robe, strumming a harp. No wonder. Okay, so I want to bust some myths about heaven, and I've got some of them uh, assembled, and so we're going to put these up here. So here's some common myths about heaven that are just out there in America and all over, okay? And, and, and so let's start going through them. Myth number one, a lot of people assume that heaven means you're kind of floating on a cloud or in the sky. In actuality, 
the afterlife, the resurrected life, the Bible makes it very clear, is on a new earth. Next, next one. Uh, a lot of people assume that heaven is kind of unfamiliar or otherworldly, ghostly, spectrally. Now, some of you are like, zombies! Ah! Okay. No, he Bible says heaven is going to be very, it's going to have a familiar character, quality to it. All right, the next one. A lot of people assume that heaven is a disembodied thing. It's like Casper, the friendly ghost, the friendliest ghost, you know, you know, kind of zipping around. No. The Bible talks that the afterlife is a God made you and me embodied creatures. Eternity, the forever part with God, is an embodied existence. The Bible says that Jesus was the first fruits of that. His resurrection is an indicator of what lies ahead for all who believe. All right? Next one. A lot of people assume that heaven means you've got to leave all your favorite things behind. No, 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 no. It's retaining the good and finding the best ahead. Next one. A lot of people assume that heaven, uh, there's no time and space. But the Bible makes it clear that there's progression. I mean, there's sequential progression uh, in the afterlife. All right? And do we have one more or is that the, the last one? We assume that heaven is static, unchanging, just like God. Or a very long lecture in Physics 101 about internal combustion. Yeah, no, no one gets excited about that. Okay, do we, is there another one or is that the last one? Okay, we assume in heaven, oh, this is my favorite. There's nothing to do. It's a permanent vacation. You're just kind of floating in the sky. The Bible actually makes it clear that there's a God to worship, a universe to rule, purposeful work to accomplish, and friends to enjoy. And if some of this stuff is striking you as new and you're like, I've never heard that ever, call me, email me this week. I'll give you those scripture references. All this is taken right out of the Bible. We assume, last of all, that heaven is going to be boring. Just Google this afternoon, is heaven boring? And you'll get like a million hits. Yeah, I'm serious. Um, heaven is fascinating. And then lastly, we assume that heaven is the absence of the terrible, but the presence of little we desire. There's the stereotypical thing of, yeah, you can go to heaven where it's boarding, or you can go to hell where there's a party. That's, con that's the common myth, believe. Heaven is actually about the presence of the wonderful, everything we desire and nothing we didn't. Heaven's better than you think. Heaven is better than you think. So why is there so much misinformation when it comes about heaven? Well, if you picture heaven as this disembodied, you know, ethereal, no fun, boring place, you're not, it's not going to capture your imagination. You're not going to think about it. Or worse, you're not going to want to go there. <laughs> right? More than one Christian pastor has admitted, yeah, heaven, not real excited about that. Because they have a, not a good understanding, not a biblical understanding about heaven. I'm going somewhere special this summer. I'm going on a eight-day Disney cruise followed by seven years, uh, seven, seems to me like seven years, seven days in Disney World. And I've got this ongoing thing with a friend of mine, Angel, who's not here today, but I, you know, I'm not looking forward to the cruise. I've never been on a cruise before. I don't know what it's like. And she's constantly telling me, Max, you are so gonna, you're gonna have so much fun. Max, this is like more fun than you can ever imagine. This is great, this is wonderful. I'm like, and this last week with the floating porta potty, it you know, only cemented some of the things that I'm feeling. Well, this week she says to me, fine, 
if you don't want to go, I'll go in your place. She's convinced I'm going to have fun. Why? Because she's the cruise queen. She's been on like 50 of them, all right? The problem is no one's gone to heaven and come back and gone, let me tell you, except maybe Jesus. And so let's wade into a vision that Jesus gave to his friend John about what it's going to be like. And that's found in the book of Revelation. Revelation, you say it that way, not revelations, it's not plural. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to his dear friend John. And in chapter 21, and that's where we're going to be today. So if I could do anything this morning, if I have a goal, it's real simple. I want to convince you that heaven is better than you think and that you really want to go there. That's what I want to do this morning. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. This is what uh, Jesus shows John. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Let's go, we're going to go through this and I want you to see some things that are in this passage. And We're going to go back to verse 1, chapter 21, verse 1. God is going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. And if you, if you soak in the Bible, it's not that God is going to nuke the former in total annihilation. It's not an annihilation ex nihilo creation. We have language in the Bible for this. Paul talks about and uses language in 2 Corinthians 5. He says... For, for every person who's been born again, they are a what? New creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So this language is used in the Bible. Revelation 21 is telling us that the curse is gone. The curse of sin and death is removed from the earth. See, you and I don't know what it's like to live on this planet in the absence of sin and death. So imagine that for a moment. Our final destination, I would pose to you, is not somewhere up in the clouds. It's a new earth, which is where God has promised uh, to put us. A new earth that has conversations, taste, food, work, Leisure, creativity, intellectual stimulation, laughter, rivers, trees, all of that stuff matters. And so when you're camping, when you're hiking, when you're at a sporting event, when you're at a festival, those are signposts to something better, something that's coming, something that's far more colorful than the drab black and white version of it we get now. So what is this sea stuff? For those of you that are that are sharp, you probably caught the, uh, and the sea was also gone. What's that all about? Well, in the ancient world, the sea separated people. The sea was, a, you had violent storms, you lost ships. And so there's, and in the book of Revelation, there's something very nasty that comes out of the sea. 
the beast. <laughs> okay? So the sea is a kind of a symbolic of, of this rebellion against God. And so in the new heaven and in the new earth, there's no more rebellion against God. And because there's no more rebellion against God, there's no more curse, there's no more death. So verses 2 and 3 um, of chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her, for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and he, they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Craig Rochelle says this is an absolutely shocking statement that God will actually dwell with people. Because if you read the Bible, you're, you, you immediately go, wait a minute, the God, the God of the universe, the God who Moses said, I want to see you. And he said to Moses, no way can you see me. If you look at me, you will wither, melt away and die. I tell you what, I'll cover your face, I'll pass by and I'll poop, let you peek at the very tail end and even that's way too much for you. Are you telling me that the God whose little bit of glory filled this temple in Jerusalem that was so powerful and so scary they would tie a rope around the priest who only went into that space one time a year because he might catch a glimpse of God and fall down dead. That God's going to dwell with people and they're not going to have their faces nuked off? Yeah. That's shocking. And the quality of the relationship, the language that's used here is that of a bride and her longing for her husband. For those of us who are married, we get what that kind of intimacy and acceptance and love and everything else is all about. This is God's dream come true, unbroken fellowship with his creation, not because we have anything to offer, not because there's anything in us that would cause us to pursue us, but because God is love and God is so amazing that he does that because he made us. And for that reason alone, he pursues and loves because of who he is not because of who we are. Look at the next couple of verses, and this is the kicker. This is what a lot of people seem to know about heaven. Verse 4 and 5, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. God will do away with death. He will do away with mourning. He will do away with pain. Let me ask you, what bothers you in this life? What hurts you in this life? You got migraines? You got lupus? You got an ex? <laughs> you got financial constraints? Gone. I've been, as a pastor, I get to do weddings, and from time to time, there'll be the whole ex thing that plays out for a young couple getting married. And it's interesting, I'll run across spouses who are divorced and, and one of the family members will say something to, doesn't it bother you that she's here? And they'll say some version of this, you know what, I'm okay with it now. She wants to be here, that's okay, I'm okay with it. I think that's a little bit of a glimpse of what it must be like on the other side you run into somebody, God forbid, that hurt you, even in heaven, and there's not going to be that sting. The sting is going to be gone. You're going to remember. You're going to know. 
but it, it's not going to sting the way it does here. Again, this is what Paul says in Colossians. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. So let me ask some questions. What percentage of your time, energy, and treasure would you say goes into making this fallen, broken world more comfortable? What percentage of your time, energy, and treasure would you say is invested in your heavenly home, the one that's going to last? And do you feel good about the difference or the spread between the two? It's kind of funny. If heaven is our final destination as believers, and if 100% of our time, energy, and treasure went into the here and now, it's kind of like being renters in a place where the renters are going to move out in two years and they totally remodel the bathroom and lay down new carpeting at their expense, everybody would look at them and go, that's dumb. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so... Would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I'm going. See, Jesus, the master carpenter, by the way, has been now, let's see, it's 2013, how many years? Preparing a place for you and me, for anyone who would put their full weight and confidence in him a place that is worth longing for. Jesus uses earthly spatial terms to describe heaven. I'm going to come back and take you indicates movement and a physical destination. And so if you're a believer, I would say to you today, that's your real home. If you're a homebody, if you like home, you're going to love the home that God is preparing for you in heaven. I have had a couple of glimpses of this in my life, and you have too. And when I tell you these two stories, you're going to go, okay, I get it. A couple of years ago, Jenny and I got to sneak away for the day at one of the lakes in Kentucky. We rented a boat. It was just the two of us, like before kids, right? And so there were t times during the day where we were just talking, talking, talking. There were times where we were swimming and having fun. And there was this moment where, you know, it was toward the mid-afternoon, late afternoon, and we were just laying in the sun on the deck of this boat with the waves rocking us and the warmth of the sun holding hands. And I remember thinking, God, I wish this could last. And then there was another time, it was probably, I don't know how many years ago, and we were at the beach in North Carolina. And it was one of those uh, ghost crab walk nights with the kids. So they all got flashlights, and, and we go outside, and it's a full moon. And it's a balmy 75 degrees, and there's a wonderful breeze. And you can just hear Mad Madeline, my youngest, giggling like no tomorrow. You know, she's having a blast. And I, Jenny and I are holding hands, and we're walking along the beach, and the kids are there, and I had the same thought. Wish I could, I wish this could last. That feeling that you and I have in those moments, 
that's a little bit of a taste of heaven. All right? So much talk. I, I think it's a shame that preachers don't talk about heaven. In the olden days, you used to get accused of being so heavenly minded you were no earthly good. Who gets accused of that anymore? Nobody. We are so focused on the here and now and making the here and now work, and we forget there is something so much better waiting. The other cool thing about heaven is that when you breathe your last breath here, if you're a believer, you're going to hear in one ear, he's gone, she's gone. And then in the other ear, other ear you're going to hear, he's here, she's here. There are going to be people ready, welcoming you. This is how Randy Alcorn puts it in his book, just simply called Heaven. He writes this, Imagine someone takes you to a party. You see a few friends there, enjoy a couple of good conversations, a little laughter, and some decent appetizers. Well, the party's all right, but you keep hoping it will get better. Give it another hour, you say, and maybe it will. Suddenly, your friend says, I need to take you home. Now? You're disappointed. Nobody wants to leave a good party. But you leave, and your friend drops you off at your house. And as you approach the door, you're feeling lonely and sorry for yourself. As you open the door and flip on the light switch, you sense someone else is in the room. Your house is full of smiling people, familiar faces. Surprise! Your house is a party, and you smell all your favorites. Barbecued ribs, pecan pie right out of the oven. The tables are full. It's a feast. You recognize the guests, people you haven't seen in a long time. Then, one by one, the people you most enjoyed at the other party start showing up at your house, grinning. This turns out to be the real party. You realized if you had stayed longer at the other party as you had wanted, you wouldn't be at the real party at all. You'd be away from it. Christians faced with terminal illness or imminent death often feel that they're leaving the party before it's over. They have to go home early. They're disappointed, thinking they'll all miss out when they leave. But the truth is, the real party is underway at home, precisely where they are going. They're not the ones missing the party. Those of us left behind are. One by one, occasionally, a few of us at a time, will disappear from this world. Those we leave behind will grieve that their loved ones have left home. In reality, their believing loved ones aren't leaving home. They're going home. They'll be home before us. We'll be arriving at the party later. It's a glimpse, a little bit of a glimpse of heaven. My absolute favorite book of nonfiction is a children's book written by C.S. Lewis called The Last Battle. Uh, I went and looked for the copy that I gave Jenny in 1988, and I couldn't find it somewhere on our shelves. But it was such my favorite book when we were dating. That was one of, the, that was one of my Christmas gifts for her. And it's, it's my favorite book of nonfiction because when I read this as a kid, Lewis captured my imagination about heaven in such a way that I wanted to be there. I wanted to go there. And that's, I think, what's needed in the church today is a, is a, is a new imaginative glimpse of what it must be like to dwell with God forever in the resurrected life. 
At the very end of the book, of the last battle, this is what C.S. Lewis writes. You don't look so happy, Aslan said, as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you've sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. There was a ra real railway accident, said Aslan. Your father and mother and all of you, well, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended and it's morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read and which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I love Lewis and his ability to capture a heart. That's what heaven is like. Better than you think, and you want to go there. 